Well, Merry Christmas, Rocky Peak. Yeah, it's so great to see you here. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. and just uh, want to wish you just a very Merry Christmas. And uh, I know many of us are part of our, our Rocky Peak community. It's so good to, to see you. Um, but I know there's also, we have, we have guests. We have people that um, are out of town. We've got uh, friends, family, neighbors, uh, visitors. Uh, some of you want to be here. Some of you were drug. You didn't really want to be, but you're here anyway. <laughs> and we're just glad you're here. We're just so, so thankful you chose to uh, celebrate uh, with us. And for those who are online, uh, the many that were once here and now are freezing in Idaho, we just want to say God bless you. <laughs> and today it's beautiful here in Southern California. <laughs> and our hearts go out to you. I, I hear it's getting cold up there. And um, yeah, so for those of you, it's your first winter, good luck. All right. <laughs> hey, we're going to go into our time of teaching. I don't know if Dre mentioned it, but you have a program in front of you. You'll need that today at a couple, couple key points. But um, today will be just a shorter message than, than normal. So uh, just a couple hours, two or three hours. Um, and uh, we're going to be jumping in here, okay? So I got something going on here. What's going on? I don't know. I guess my ears are moving or something, I don't know. Uh, let's pray together. So Father, we're just so thankful to be here on this day, this amazing time when we celebrate uh, the coming of our King. And Lord, as we reflect today on the beauty of the incarnation, uh, this time when the God who created all time and space uh, entered into creation to become part of the human race, to rescue us and give us life. Uh, we pray that today, Lord, that for those of us who have come to faith in you, that have met you, that our lives have been changed, that our eyes would be opened in fresh way to realize what an amazing message and gift this is. And for those of us who are maybe on a journey or we've not even started a journey towards you, may this be a day where our eyes are open to see uh, the beauty and the gift and the implications of this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story today begins on January the 29th, 1943. It's in the heart and uh, the dark days of World War II. The place is on the eastern, uh, off the eastern coast of Canada. There's a large island there called Newfoundland, and there was a, a large seaport there. And this day, 900 American soldiers are going to board a vessel called the USAT Dorchester. Before the war, it was actually a luxury liner that would uh, offer cruises from Boston to Miami and back. But because of the war, it's been converted into a troop transport. And on this day, uh, 900 American soldiers are going to get on the Dorchester and head off for a five-day voyage from Newfoundland to Greenland. Um, they're not alone on this voyage. They're, they're part of a six-ship convoy. Um, there's two other troop transports. There are three other Coast Guard cutters that are there to help defend, uh, help defend these ships, uh, to... Um, to protect, to, to provide a, kind of an escort for them, um, to, uh, to drop depth charges on German U-boats that are known to be in the area, and if worst case scenario happens, to rescue um, people that are, are uh, in, a, in a vessel that gets shot down. 
And so as they, they head off, they know that in many ways they're, they're heading into uncharted, dangerous waters. I mean, this is a, the heart of winter. Um, there's a storm in the forecast. They're heading through the North Atlantic, frigid, frigid waters. Um, but the greater danger, as I mentioned, is from German U-boats, these, these boats that could travel both on top of the water but submerge like a submarine that were such a, such a part of the arsenal of the Nazi war effort. And uh, so on this particular day, they, they head off in this transport, and sure enough, they hit harsh weather right away. And for the next four days, there, there's just a mighty storm at sea, and so many of the men on board, these are, these are soldiers, not sailors, are, are really sick and seasick. And yet, in a way, this is a tremendous blessing because in a day and age before radar, um, this storm is, is covering them. It's harder for them to be detected. But on the fourth night of their journey, the storm starts to subside. The weather clears, the sea's calm, and there's still some fog, but overall, the, the storm leaves. And for many of the, the soldiers on board, they're thrilled because now they can finally begin to enjoy the voyage. But for the captain of the Dorchester, he's more worried than ever because he knows now that even though it's at nighttime, that they will be more visible to the naked eye. And sure enough, uh, kind of right before, right before bedtime, the, the captain issues an order through the public address system, the entire ship, that, that tonight is uh, a very dangerous night. That if they can just make it through this night, they will likely make it safely to Greenland because if they can make it this through this night, they'll be within 150 miles of Greenland. And that's within the range of the military fighter jets, the fighter planes, the uh, kind of military bombers that can help kind of patrol the area and keep out the U-boats. But they have to make it through this night. And so before the men go to bed, the captain reminds them of the danger they're in. And he issues an order to every man on the ship that tonight you sleep in your clothes. In fact, tonight, every man is to sleep in their life preserver in case they come under attack. And sure enough, shortly before midnight, on February the 2nd, a thousand yards away, a German U-boat that was commanded by a 26-year-old Lieutenant Commander surfaced from under the water. And the commander got up on deck of the U-boat and pulled out his binoculars and began to scan the horizon for any Allied ships. And in the far distance, we could barely make it out through the fog, he saw the hull of the USAT Dorchester. And so he quickly put his binoculars down, went below deck, issued the orders for the U-boat to submerge and to immediately load and then launch the three torpedoes that they carried towards the Dorchester, which was a thousand yards away. And within minutes, his crew had carried out his command and these three torpedoes were headed towards the Dorchester. It was unsuspecting. Unfortunately, two of those torpedoes would completely miss their mark but the third hit it broadside. On the starboard side, which is the right side facing forward, on the starboard side, it hit 
far below the water line and right near the engine room. And when it hit, there was a tremendous explosion. It blew a gaping hole in the side of the ship and the frigid waters of the Atlantic became pouring in. Immediately, the ship began to list to one side. The lights and every floor, every light and the whole ship went out. And for the men who survived that initial blast, it was a time of utter chaos and panic. As they tried to make their, their way up through several floors, up the ladders and so on, up to the top deck, knowing that their only chance of survival was to get off this ship before it went under, which they didn't know at the time, but was going to happen within 25 minutes. And for those who made it up topside right away, there was a couple options. One was to try to get into one of the life, the lifeboats that were there on the top deck, but many were frozen because of the winter storm. The other option is they began throwing ropes over the side so that men with life jackets could actually skinny down, kind of shimmy down the, the, the rope into the frigid sea in the hopes of being picked up by one of the Coast Guard cutters. One of the men who did have his life jacket on and made it down into the water would later describe this surreal scene as they're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean with no lights. In the distance, he can see the hull of the ship that's been his home for the last few days, listing terribly to its side. And all around him are fellow soldiers, but he can't make out their faces or their shapes. He can only see the flashing red lights on their life preservers. And looking back, he said it, it felt like Christmas. Meanwhile, back on top of the ship, it's chaos and more and more soldiers are making their way out of the darkness. Of course, some are wounded, some are screaming, it's chaotic. But in the midst of that chaos, there was four men who stood out for their calm and their courage. These were four chaplains. And they were moving from soldier to soldier, encouraging, strengthening, helping the wounded. And of course, each of these chaplains had on their own life jacket as the captain had ordered, but many of the men coming up had disregarded the order and didn't have a life jacket. And as they came to the top of the ship, it became obvious that this was their ticket to life, that without a life jacket, there was no hope. You were going down. And so the four chaplains realized this at a certain point and one of them remembered that there was a, a locker on, on the top level of the ship, on the, on the deck, of extra life jackets. And so they made their way through the darkness. And when they found it there, they began calling out to the men who needed a life jacket. And they began to, to come and try to get a jacket. And these four chaplains were reaching in and getting a life jacket, kind of this ticket to life, and handing it to men. But at a certain point, the line was still continuing and they came to their last jacket. And what happened next would later move the heart of a nation because these four chaplains who are aged 32 to 43, um, all of them had volunteered for duty. Two of them had actually been rejected from duty for some sort of reason, 
medical reason or some of the rise. But after Pearl Harbor was bombed, the United States had entered the war, it changed the rules of the game and they were accepted into service. But these four men who were standing there who had all volunteered to serve, as they looked at the locker and realized there was no, there was no life jackets left and this was the only way someone could survive, they looked at each other and without hesitation, each of these men took off his own life jacket and gave it to one of these panicking young soldiers, knowing that in the process, they were signing their own death warrant. And sure enough, within minutes, that ship went down. And from many eyewitness accounts of men in the water watching as it went down, they said the last thing they saw was these four chaplains at the top of the ship holding on to the top railing arm in arm, praying and singing hymns to God. As they descended and plunged with the ship down to their death. When the story reached the States, the country in the throes of World War II in dark days, not knowing how it would last, was so moved by the courage and the calm of these four men who had given up their life so others could live, that Congress wanted to give them the Medal of Honor. But they couldn't really do that because the Medal of Honor is only, it's reserved for those who show courage under fire, heroic courage under fire. And they weren't under fire when they, they did this. And so they did the next best thing. They gave them all purple hearts. They, they gave them the Distinguished Service Cross Award. But that was in it. The nation was so moved that Congress was moved to designate the day that they died, February 3rd, as four chaplains day for the nation. And five years later, the nation was still so moved by this act of courage that the US Postal Service created a stamp in their honor. And I want you to see it right here. These immortal chaplains, Interfaith in Action, three cents. Don't you love that? <laughs> like, wow, that was a long time ago. And that wasn't the end of the story. 13 years later, after the stamp, the country was still so moved that in 1961, our Congress created a new medal to honor these four men. They said that the, the goal was to create a medal that was equal to the Medal of Honor, but one that they could give. And so they created a medal called the Four Chaplains Medal. It's the only time in history it's ever been given out is to those four men. And if you were to drive across our country today, if you knew where to look, there are monuments to the four chaplains scattered abroad throughout our country. You know, I first heard this story, um, it was earlier this year, and um, it was after a message I gave, I can't remember which one, I can't remember what it was about, but I remember that someone from our church sent me an email and said, have you heard of the story of the four chaplains? And I hadn't. And I began to research it to see if it was really true. 
And it was really true. And it was shocking to me. Like, how can I have lived so long and not heard of this story that moved a nation, our nation, for so long? I mean, I realize I'm only 29. (laughs) But you'd still think within my 30 years, I would have heard, right? And some of you are much older than me, right? And But you know, <laughs> 32, and there we go. Uh, but you know, when I heard this story, you know, my first instinct was to research it to make sure it was true. But once I did, I knew it was a story I wanted to share with you on Christmas Eve. Because this is really what Christmas is about. You know, we, when we think of the birth, we think of Christmas, we think of the birth of Jesus, naturally, right? And we think of all that surrounds that. We think of the angel coming to Mary with the surprising news. We, we think of her supernatural pregnancy. We think of Joseph's pushback and then change of mind. We think of the long trip to Bethlehem. We think of the, the, Augusta, the, the edict of Caesar Augustus, all the world would be taxed. We think of them coming to the city of David. We think of the no room at the inn. We think of the angels out in the fields announcing this epic event to shepherds. We think of the coming of the wise men. We think of the birth of this baby in a manger. And of course, that's all rightfully so. That's how the story starts. But if you've read the story of Jesus, if you know the story of Jesus, you know that that's not how the story ends. That this was a child who was born to give his life that others could live. And when I first heard this story, it reminded me of a passage in this letter that we've been studying as a church, Paul's letter to the Romans. And for those who you are new, that this letter is written from a man that we call Paul. And Paul was a, uh, a vicious hater of the movement of Jesus, initially a violent oppressor. But about two years after the resurrection of Jesus, he met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and it changed his life. And Jesus appointed him as a special messenger for Jesus, what we call an apostle. And so many years later, he's writing this letter to the church at Rome, and it's there in your note sheet. It's in Romans chapter five, he's reflecting on this child that was born, kind of born to die. And he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. And of course, we we hear these stories, right? We've all heard the stories of, Uh, a young soldier who jumps on a grenade to protect his buddies. We've heard stories of the firefighters who would rush into the Twin Towers on 9-11 and and risk their lives to save others. We've all, even recently the stories coming out of Israel of of when the attacks of Hamas came, of of brave Israelis who would would shield their fellow, their, their children or their friends and willingly give their life for others. And so we we hear these stories. We hear these stories like the one we just talked about today, these four chaplains who willingly gave up their life knowing that they they would die as a result. And so Paul says, very rare, they're kind of rare stories, will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. It does happen. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still, what? Sinners, right? And, and, 
And I know it's kind of a religious word, but a couple verses on, Paul will define what he means by the word sinner, and he uses the word enemies. While we were a rebel race, and what God did in giving his son, what Jesus willingly did, is he was born into that manger, knowing that one day he would give his life for a rebel race. This is not like, this is like the four chaplains taking off their vest and not giving them to fellow soldiers that they love and serve. This would be like taking off the vest and giving it to the commander of the German U-boat and his crew if they were going down. The one who had just blown a hole in the side of your ship and killed so many of the men that you love. And the Apostle Paul later will reflect on this, this story of Christmas, this act of love. And he, he, there on your note sheet, you have in 2 Corinthians, he talking about Jesus, he said, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I want you to think about that, that word indescribable. Something that is without human analogy. Something we can't say, yeah, kind of what God did in giving this gift of his son, that that's like this. There's nothing in our lives that's like this. Paul says it's indescribable. It's beyond words. And yet this is the message of Christmas, right? As I said earlier, the way I like to put it is there, there was a time when the God who created all time and space entered into his creation and became a part of the human race to rescue us and give us life through his death. And that's why we gather every year to celebrate Christmas. That's why we come today to reflect on, to celebrate, to give thanks for this incredible gift, indescribable gift. Now, the thing about a gift, though, is that a gift has to not only be offered, a gift has to be received, doesn't it? Like we're about to leave and many of you will be going to family gatherings, friends gathering parties and either tonight or tomorrow and exchanging gifts. And you're gonna receive gifts and someone can give you a gift but it's not until you unwrap the gift, open the gift and begin to use the gift that you've really received it. Like the gift does no good for you if it stays unwrapped. And so this is the challenge and the question that Christmas always raises for us. Whether we're a believer or not a believer, is it what are we doing with this incredible gift? If we're a follower of Jesus, are we truly unwrapping this gift and, and really receiving it with all of our life and all the implications? For those of us who've not yet given our life to Jesus, is this time... Is this the time in your life when, when it's finally time to start exploring this gift? Is this, really, is this gift really for real? Is this story of the life and the death and the resurrection, of, is that even historically credible? 
Does that have an implication for my life? But the question is, how will we respond to this indescribable gift? Amen? Let's pray together. So Lord, as we come today, this Christmas weekend, we want to reflect on this indescribable gift, the greatest gift ever given, the gift of your son, Jesus, the gift of your life for a rebel race that we could actually be forgiven for that rebellion, that we could be transformed by the gift of your spirit, that we could live a new life and that we can be part of this kingdom that's coming, the new, the new creation, the new, new heavens, and it would have meaning and purpose in our life. How will we respond? And so Lord, we pray that as we listen to the band as they sing this over us, I pray, Lord, that you'd help each of us reflect on how we respond this Christmas to this indescribable gift. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.